Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining us today is Lee Buckingham, the prosecuting attorney for the 24th Judicial Circuit of Indiana, which is Hamilton County. Hamilton County is the county immediately to the north of Indianapolis and is a rapidly growing jurisdiction. Lee was first elected to office in 2011, and he is currently running for re-election. Welcome, Lee. Thank you very much for having me on the uh, on your podcast, Shaughnessy. Well, of course, we are so, so, so happy to have you. I'm very excited that you were willing to come on when I reached out and asked you to do so. So why don't you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in terms of your experience within the prosecutor's office? Sure. So I started as a deputy prosecuting attorney in Hamilton County way, way back in 1995. Oh, wow. Um, I I've been practicing law for a couple of years and I was looking for something that uh, had a little more stability and benefits than the private practice that I was doing at the time. And so I I took a position as a DPA up here in uh, uh, early in the year in 1995 and served for 16 years as a deputy prosecuting attorney before uh, ultimately then running for office in 2010 and winning the election and taking office in January of 2011. Wow, that's a long time. I got to tell you, Lee, I was in middle school when <laughs> you first became a deputy prosecutor. So, you know, sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> thanks for making me feel really old. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, and I know like it, it's very interesting because it's obviously a political office and you have to run for office to to get the position. And, you know, through my experience, I know lots and lots of different prosecutors and some of them strike me as, you know, kind of a politician and you are just not that kind of person. You are definitely true blue in the trenches, actually know what you're doing person. And so it surprises me that you ever even ran for office in the first place. So what made you decide to run back in uh, 2010, 2011? Well, uh, at that time, I'd been with the office for 15 years in early 2010. And there had been a gentleman that had been running for prosecuting attorney for about two and a half years at that point in time. He got Mm -hmm. into the race really, really early and pretty much had it all sewn up. And then some news came out about some contributions that he had accepted and some uh, sentence modifications that he had agreed to or a sentence modification that he had agreed to. And it, it became very concerning to me. I didn't know what, whether there was a there there, but it certainly had an appearance of impropriety mm-hmm. and that potential of having that cloud cast over the office that I had dedicated 15 years to at that point in time um, made me want to get involved. And so mm-hmm. several people came to me, some leaders in the community and asked me to get involved. And so I decided over one weekend, the wow. week before the final deadline, oh uh, I decided to go downtown and throw my hat in the proverbial ring, so to speak, and run for prosecuting attorney of Hamilton County because I did not want that cloud, (laughs) that black cloud that uh, at that time was somewhat looming over Marion County Mm -hmm. where this gentleman worked. 
coming up here. And as you're aware, ultimately, uh, he was indicted by the feds for, he sure was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for bribery and corrupt activity relative to accepting donations in exchange for, in this case, he agreed to let someone out uh, after I believe it was 18 years of a 70 year sentence on a murder conviction. And mm-hmm. uh, that obviously would have would have been extremely detrimental to the Hamilton County Prosecuting Attorney's Office and to the Hamilton County criminal justice system as a whole. So uh, I'm very thankful that I was able to prevail back then. You know, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful too. you know, at that point in time, I was still a young attorney. I think I'd only been practicing for a couple of years and I didn't know you, obviously I didn't know anyone in Hamilton County really at that point. So, so new still. And I knew that he was running up here and which by the way, I say here because I live in Hamilton County now, but I knew he was running and I, and in my head, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, and everybody was just like, that's, that's a real shame, you know? And we just assumed he was going to win because he acted like, you know, he had it all sewn up just like he said. And I think everybody really did think that. And then when you won, everyone was completely blown away. And I can tell you, even way back then, all I heard were good things about you from other people within the community. So certainly it happened as it should have. And it wasn't some, you know, politician running for not the right reasons. So definitely thankful that you were able to get into the office back then. And I'm assuming that's why you're running for re-election. You want to keep that going. I do. I'm currently in my third term. So I've been acting as the elected prosecuting attorney for 11 years and basically three months at this point in time. And I've been with the office for 27 years. So I've wow. really dedicated pretty much my almost the entirety of my legal career to the Hamilton County Prosecuting Attorney's Office and to helping keep Hamilton County safe and working with law enforcement to ensure that Hamilton County remains one of the safest counties in the state of Indiana. Since I enjoy it so much and enjoy working with with law enforcement, uh, I'm hopeful that I can continue and ultimately finish out my career. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important too to just even point this out that you were a deputy when you ran. So if you had lost, you would have lost your job. It, so it was kind of all or nothing like it because he certainly wasn't going to keep you on staff after you would run against him, right? Uh, he made that perfectly clear in a phone <laughs> conversation to me that that if I dropped out, I would be able to keep my job. And if I didn't drop out, I would not be able to keep my job. So Good he, for you. Uh, that the gentleman that uh, was running back then that I defeated made it perfectly clear that my job was on the line if I stayed in. Wow. Well, thankfully you did. And, you know, as I said, I didn't know you back then. And then I did, you know, finally get occasion to meet you when I was working for the prosecuting attorney's council as the domestic violence and sexual assault resource prosecutor. And I actually got to co-teach with you at a domestic violence trial advocacy course and was immediately, you know, upon when I first met you, absolutely just respected and was thankful for your dedication and your commitment to victims of sex crimes, because these cases are, in my opinion, and I think a lot of prosecutors share this opinion, they're maybe the most or at least one of the most difficult types of cases to prosecute. And we talk about that a little bit, like what makes these cases so difficult? Sure. The main thing that makes these cases so difficult is they're done behind closed doors. These offenses are committed behind closed doors when the perpetrators intentionally are doing this in secret. And particularly child sex offenses, they are done you know, in the dark oftentimes mm-hmm. uh, when no one is around, no one else is home or everybody else is sleeping. And uh, ch- children are obviously 
scared, traumatized. Oftentimes they're told, don't tell anyone. So oftentimes these cases result in delayed disclosures. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the kids don't know, they they feel shame. Even adult victims oftentimes feel shame and therefore Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily want to come forward right away. And, you know, I can understand that sentiment, but Mm -hmm. that is part of what sometimes make these makes these cases more difficult, because when you have a delayed disclosure, you oftentimes Mm. can't collect the physical evidence that jurors want and truly expect and demand most, Mm -hmm. most occasions these days, the more and more they see these cases on television and think that uh, you can get you know, fingerprints off of somebody's skin and things, some crazy things like that. They, they just want so much evidence. And oftentimes these cases do not have a lot of physical evidence to them. That's so true. I always, we always, we would wadir on it or jury selection is what that means for people. Cause some, you know, sometimes I say things I'm like, probably not everyone knows what that means, but uh, right. we would talk about the CSI effect and how, you know, just because you saw it on CSI or criminal minds or whatever one, it's not actually how the science works. And, you know, you can tell people that and they can say, sure, but sometimes they're still, they want, you know, just like you said, a fingerprint off of a piece of skin and it's just simply not going to happen. So uh, yeah, the evidence doesn't work the way they want it to, I think. And for some reason, people, I don't, I feel like the, the knee jerk reaction so often is just not to believe victims for people. And I, you know, I think that we could spend a whole episode talking about why that is, But because it is that way, you know, they are more difficult to prosecute and so many different things have to be taken in consideration. And just as a prosecutor, generally, I would always tell people the way it works is you have so many balls that you're juggling in the air at one time. You know, your first priority is your victim that's right in front of you, but you got to worry about the next victim too. And you got to worry about holding that offender accountable. And that's a lot. And there's so much that goes into it and you have to worry about what, what the jury's going to do. And so it's really, really, really a difficult thing to do. And also obviously so very important. Yes. They're they're so complex. And the reality is you have to evaluate all of those things. As you said, the victim always has to be paramount and primary, and you have to uh, know your victim, get spend time getting to know your victim, develop rapport with them, develop trust so that they know that you are doing everything you can to support them. Ultimately, sometimes in those cases, you know, we have to take certain courses of action because the victim may not be able to go forward, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, whether it's a, a young child that just would, be, would suffer too much additional trauma by going through the trial process, which mm-hmm. is not easy. I mean, you, you've done this long enough to know that it can be brutal on victims And those are all things that as prosecuting attorneys, we have to take into consideration when we're determining what is the best approach and what is the best way to try and resolve this case. Sometimes it means pushing forward and making sure that we take the case to trial and get a conviction Mm -hmm. and put someone away as long as possible. Other times when we might want to do that as prosecutors, we know that our victim's not in a position to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we have to resolve the case sometimes in another fashion. Might not be exactly exactly the outcome that we would like to have, but it's a uh, outcome that needs to occur in certain cases because uh, we're looking out for the victims too. 
Absolutely. And so as we're sitting here talking about this, I hope it's clear to people that, you know, there's obviously so much decision making that goes into every single case, but I think that it is just amplified tenfold in these types of cases. And then, so you're already starting, I feel like behind the eight ball. And then there are so many gaps in the law that make it difficult too. And I just want to touch real quick on the fact that there is a new addition to the rape law that's going to go into effect in July. The governor just signed it in March. House Enrolled Act 1079, which was brought by Representative Sharon Nagel. And I know that the Prosecuting Attorneys Council and Courtney Kerr specifically had a major hand in getting this passed. And basically, it's going to expand the law a little bit and give them a little bit more, it's a little bit more clarity because the way the law was written before, you know, is like very, very specific. And as we know, you know, and it was like force or fraud or, or excuse me, not fraud, uh, drugging or somebody who is or mentally un- unaware. Just right. Kind of, you know. And it's like, at first blush, maybe that seems like it would be okay, but it's not like there's so much, there's so much nuance and there's so much, you know, and again, with the sexual stuff, there's so much that's not so much of his nonverbal, I think too, that there, and I know I had so many cases where it just didn't fall nicely into those categories. And so when you're already starting with cases that are difficult to make juries understand, and then you've got a law that isn't doing you any favors, it's really difficult. So do you think that this law is going to help you guys be able to, you know, be able to better uh, charge some of the offenders? Yes. So this law definitely is going to help with a segment of cases that kind of fell in that, mm-hmm. that gap area. This is something that IPAC had been working on for at least a couple of years and mm-hmm. maybe even a little longer than that. I serve on the board of IPAC and I'm on their legislative committee. And I, I know that uh, going several years back, we've been trying to promote additional language in the rape statute to try and help give us more tools in our tool belt, so to speak, more things that we can talk to the jurors about and explain. Because although there sometimes was some case law that may have enabled us to Mm -hmm. uh, argue in front of the jury, oftentimes judges may not have allowed that to be part of the instructions that the jurors are presented. And therefore, jurors are left, you know, in a tough place where they might have to make a decision. Well, there wasn't necessarily force involved Mm -hmm. and therefore uh, they might acquit somebody where otherwise we think they should have been convicted or were, were in fact guilty of rape. That's definitely good to hear. And I'm glad that you talked a little bit about how much you serve on the IPAC stuff, because it's a heck of a responsibility and a commitment, but it's so important. And that legislative committee specifically has been so successful in the last several years, even when I was still IPAC for victims of crime. And actually, Courtney Curtis is going to come on in a couple of weeks and talk about all of the different laws within the last couple of years that have shored some things up for victims. But you guys have been incredibly active and incredibly successful. And it's certainly, I'm thankful for it because it's only going to help victims, but something else. So you're already a part of that. You're doing the macro stuff, but on a micro level, you've also added a lot into your own office in terms of these special victims, as we call them, and having prosecutors that have that special expertise. So can you tell us a little bit about how you are beefing up that unit within your own office? Sure, I can. So let me tell you, Hamilton County is a very, very rapidly growing community. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Has been for at least 27 years. Uh, if you go back to 19, I'll, I'll, be, I'll give you a little history on this. So if you go back to 1995, Hamilton County's population was 140,900 people. 
When I took office the pop, uh, in 2011, the population was about 274,000 people. We are now probably in the 355,000 range. Crap. So we have grown 150% since I started working here. And we've added over 80,000 people since I took office 11 okay. years ago. 80,000 people. That is a lot of people. Um, that, that, that's more people than most counties in Indiana have in their entirety. And we've added that many just the, in the last 11 years. The county I grew up in has 8,000 people today. Have I told you anything? <laughs> so we've added 10 times that since, uh, since I took office 11 wow. years ago. So when you have that sort of rapid growth, the reality is I've had to, over the last few years, uh, add additional uh, resources and deputy prosecutors to start addressing, you know, just the additional crime that 80,000 new people is going oh, yeah. to obviously bring. So about roughly four years ago, I added a second sex crimes prosecutor. Uh, historically, okay. we had always had a had one sex crimes prosecutor here in Hamilton County throughout my all my entire time here. So I added a second sex crimes prosecutor four years ago. And then two years ago, I added a second domestic violence prosecutor because we realized that even before COVID, we were starting to see uh, mm -hmm. the domestic violence cases increasing. And obviously, again, mm -hmm. when you have 80,000 people, on the unfortunate sad reality is that you're going to have additional cases. Oh, yeah. look, look at any county with 80,000 people and mm -hmm. they're going to have, you know, a fair amount of domestic violence occurring in that county. Well, we've added 80,000 people in the last 11 years to bring us up to the 350,000 plus range. And so it was necessary to add those additional DPAs and resources to help mm -hmm. address the additional uh, workload. At this point in time, I'm uh, in the process of looking to add an additional person that's going to be involved in the sex crimes aspect wow. of my office. The reality is we have a child advocacy center here that mm -hmm. does hundreds of forensic interviews of children every year. Now, thankfully, vast majority of those situations end up being something that is not necessarily nefarious or uh, necessary to be prosecuted. But whenever a child discloses to someone that, you know, someone touched them, sometimes it's uh, it's something that's not nefarious, but we are attending all of those 200 plus interviews mm -hmm. every year. So 200 to 300 child forensic interviews are taking place. And so we're going to dedicate someone to be involved in each and every one of those. I want to point out how big of a deal that is because in larger jurisdictions, it simply does not happen. In the smaller jurisdictions where are, there are so many fewer cases, I think it's more common for prosecutors to have the time to be able to do that. But in a jurisdiction of your size, that is not normal. So that is, and, and it is important that it happens. So I want to make sure everybody understands how big of a deal that is because it, it's really quite extraordinary. And that's something we've been doing for, for years and years. We have attended the vast majority of all the forensic interviews throughout the entire tenure of, of, of my time in office. But the reality is now those two sex crimes prosecutors that I have that are both excellent, very experienced attorneys yes, uh, who have dealt with sex offenses uh, for many, many years, they're being stretched a little thin. And I don't want that one. I don't want them to get burnt out. 
Mm -hmm. Two, I want us to be able to continue to be extremely responsive to law enforcement. We work with law enforcement very, very closely on these cases. Having handled these cases previously yourself, you know how involved these cases are and the investigations are. Even though sometimes we don't have lots of physical evidence to collect, there are still many, 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 many people that need to be interviewed to try and mm -hmm. verify and corroborate anything and everything that the child discloses in a child molesting uh, case. And so that's something we've been doing. We just need to have more manpower to be able to stay on top of that and also be able to have everybody maintain their caseload at a manageable level and continue being responsive and prompt in screening these cases with law enforcement. So I want to make sure that, uh, that we can continue to do that in an effective an efficient way. And so I'm in the process of uh, looking for an additional sex crime prosecutor. If there's anybody out there with experience, send them my way. I will. I will. I get questions all the time. So I will. I think that it's, it's, it's important enough to note that it's remarkable that you're seeing the big picture too. Cause I think that it would be very easy to not be looking down the road and seeing, because of course, as the landscape of the population changes, the landscape of the crime is going to change, obviously, and the landscape of your office has to change. And so that's happening. You're growing with it. And I think that's so important and it has grown exponentially and continues to, obviously I moved here. I felt safe enough to move here. I moved here for a reason. I chose this location for a reason and it is safe and it's nice. The law enforcement aspect of that is a big part of it. And I don't just mean the police officers. I mean, the prosecutor's office too. It's a very, very safe community and the office is growing in a way that it needs to. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. I, when you talk about it being safe, one thing I, 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 I like to share with people, we have four cities in Hamilton County, Carmel, Fishers, Noblesville, and Westfield. A 2021 SafeWise analysis of all of the cities in Indiana showed that Westfield was the second safest city in the entire state. Carmel was the third safest city in the, in the entire state. Fishers was the fourth safest city and Noblesville was the seventh safest city. Wow. So we had four cities and they are all in the top seven of the safest cities. And if you, if you eliminate the smaller cities with populations below 50,000, mm -hmm. then we have the top three safest cities That's in awesome. the entire state over 50,000 with Carmel, Fishers and Noblesville being one, two, and three, because each Carmel and Fishers are each close to a hundred thousand at mm -hmm. this point in time. And uh, Noblesville, I think, is in the 70,000 range, roughly. Westfield's below the 50,000 limit now, but probably will be above 50,000 yeah. within a year or two, quite frankly, because I, I think, think they're hovering around 47,000 right now. I feel like every time you ride down the street, there's a new subdivision coming up. So it's probably true. Yep, yep. That is quite remarkable, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative about any other jurisdictions, but I think it's even more remarkable when you think about the proximity to Indianapolis and that there is a public safety crisis there. It's just, I mean, that's just the truth and still doing okay up here. And I think that that's something that you got to be really proud of. Well, I am. The reality is we work very closely with law enforcement. They are on duty 24-7, 365. We are on call 24-7, 365 to assist them, whether it's with a layered red flag law situation. Mm -hmm. uh, we had 39 of those last year, whether it's uh, obtaining prosecutor subpoenas, and I think we obtained about 950 of those last year, whether it's obtaining search warrants to help them in their investigations of, of different crimes. Uh, and I think we obtained over 1,350 search warrants wow. last year. 
we work very, very closely with law enforcement to try and make sure that we all collectively help Hamilton County remain a safe and wonderful place to live, work, and raise a family. That's wonderful. I really, really love to hear that. Did you want to share with us any cases the office is working on or has worked on that you think would be uh, beneficial for people to hear about? So we have uh, restarted jury trials recently. Yay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, as you're aware, different jurisdictions have uh, responded to COVID in different fashions. We've had periods of time when we have kind of, at no point did did the courts kind of come out and say, hey, we're closed, we're not going to have jury trials. But the reality is that during the heights of COVID situations, they were not conducting jury trials. And so Mm -hmm. we kind of started getting geared up again back in mid-February. And just since then, we've had two sex offense cases go to trial. One, let's see, we had about six weeks ago, five, six weeks ago, we had a case where the defendant went to trial on a rape case. He was convicted and sentenced to 40 years in the Department of Corrections. Excuse me, that was not a rape. That was a child molesting case. Okay. Um, And then we had a child solicitation and that defendant was convicted and is awaiting sentencing right now. We have another case going to trial next week on a, uh, another sex offense case. So we're, we're picking up at this point in time now that COVID has really subsided. We're getting back, back in the full swing of things on the jury trial front. Let's see. We also just in the last month and a half, had a, a trial on a lady that was alleged to have been involved with another gentleman in killing her husband with some poisonous mushrooms and strangulation type situation, we believe. Uh, she was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and is awaiting sentencing right now. Wow, that sounds like something you'd read in a true crime novel. <laughs> It, yeah, that's that's one of our more interesting ones we've dealt with over the last couple of years. Thankfully, our murder rate here in Hamilton County is extremely low. We have very few awesome. uh, murder cases, but those that we do have, obviously, we treat very, very seriously and have prosecuted them to the fullest. Yeah, you absolutely do. And anecdotally, I can sit here and say, oh, it's safe and stuff. But if you actually look at the raw data, you can see it too. The numbers don't lie. It's a safe community and the prosecution rate is very successful. Is there any advice you have for anybody listening as a seasoned prosecutor, anything you want to say or share about your vision for the future of the office? My vision for the office is that we continue effectively prosecuting the crimes here in Indiana, or excuse me, in Hamilton County. You know, some people think that all prosecutors do is try to put everyone in jail for as long as they possibly can. And in some instances, that is our goal. But Mm -hmm. those cases are are not the norm. Those are, you know, when someone commits a serious, violent or heinous offense, that then typically is going to be our goal. Put them away for as long as we possibly can. Get them away from society, protect society. But the vast majority of cases that we deal with are not heinous offenses that are committed by heinous, evil people. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell people all the time, if there were no drugs or alcohol in the world, probably roughly 80% of most of what my office does would not exist. Probably a conservative estimate. Yeah. I sometimes say 80 or 80 or 90, but the reality is people sometimes look at me strangely that aren't familiar with the criminal justice system because they don't, that doesn't compute for them. Mm -hmm. But 
if you look at it directly or indirectly, alcohol and drugs drive yeah. so much of what the criminal justice system does. You know, yep. Obviously, things like operating while intoxicated and possession of drugs and selling drugs are all directly alcohol mm-hmm. or drug related, but so many other offenses, so many of our batteries, so many of our thefts, so many of our burglaries are committed because people are either under the influence or are addicts who are seeking to gain something, whether it's money or items to be able to sell or trade for drugs. Yep. And so if I tell people frequently, if I had a magic wand and could eliminate alcohol or dr- and drugs, it would make my office, most of what my office does go away. And obviously yep. I'm looking at that from just the narrow perspective of a prosecuting attorney who spent the last 27 years uh, dealing with crime. And so, you know, I've obviously, I know I have blinders on from the, the perspective that I look at things, but it would make life generally much better in terms of the crime that we deal with. I think anybody who has anything to do with the criminal justice system would agree with that, whether you're prosecuting, defending judges, I think we all see it. And you're right that like the average person on the street might not see a burglary case or something like that and think, well, what do you mean it has anything to do with drugs? And almost every single time you're right, they're either under the influence or they're trying to find something to sell to that can be under the influence, you know, so it is it's extremely frustrating, especially with the fact that we have the opioid crisis going on. So of course, I think that crime is going to rise. It's just a natural progression from that. So I'll tell you another thing we're seeing here in Hamilton County and probably in other parts of uh, the state and the country too, is mental health illness is becoming Mm -hmm. even more prevalent. I tell people now, you know, 80% or more is covered by alcohol and drugs. Another 10, 15% at least is covered by by mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hopeful that we can get a mental health court in Hamilton County in the not too distant future. We currently have two problem solving courts. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we have have a drug court uh, and the drug court has two different tracks, the regular drug court track and an OWI track for people who have multiple OWIs. Oh, interesting. I don't know if you've had occasion to talk about problem solving courts on your podcast. I haven't. So people probably don't even know what they are. So problem solving courts, they've been around for a little while, but they're in the whole scheme of the criminal justice system. They're relatively new. They're very, very intense programs that are to deal with high risk offenders. As an example, I'll talk about the drug court program. So our drug court program started right at the very beginning of my tenure in office, although I was not responsible for starting it, Judge Bardock here in Hamilton oh. County was responsible for getting the Hamilton County Drug Court started back in late 2010. And it mm-hmm. started operating very at the very end of 2010 or beginning of 2011. So it involves the judge, probation, mental health care providers, a substance abuse providers, representatives of my office. And I served mm-hmm. on the drug court team for about awesome. seven or eight years myself, uh, defense attorneys involved, and every single week, all of these people, and it's a, in Hamilton County, it's somewhere between, I think, about 13 and 15 people gather around a table every Monday morning and talk about everybody that's in drug court. Awesome. And later in the day, we have the drug court session, and everybody that's in drug court, when they're starting, they come every single week to court. They are meeting with their probation officer at least once a week frequently twice a week at the beginning. They're meeting with their 
substance abuse providers at least once a week. So it is a very intense wraparound program to try and make sure that we get people who are in that cycle of using drugs and committing crimes, try and pull them back and get them on a much better path in life so that they are not just continually coming in and out of the system, you know, as a repeat offender. That's awesome. And I'm glad that you explained what that means. And those programs are so important. And I'm glad that you talked, you know, I think that it sounds like the office just really has its priorities, right? You've got the case that you just talked about where the person got 40 years for molesting a child. Thank goodness. Right. Love it. And then you've got over here, you're not just trying to lock everybody up who's got the drug or alcohol or mental health problems. And that is so important too. Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners before we sign off here today? I just appreciate very much you having me on your podcast. I truly enjoyed talking to you. It's a pleasure to serve as the prosecuting attorney of Hamilton County. I truly enjoy, you know, working with my staff. My, I have a very, very dedicated staff. I think, you know, having worked with a few people in my office Mm -hmm. uh, in your prior life as a prosecuting attorney, you know, uh, you know, at least those people, how dedicated and hardworking they are. I just truly enjoy and have a, am blessed to have a wonderful staff that works very, very hard to help keep Hamilton County safe. You certainly do. And I'm going to tell you something that someone told me when I started at IPAC many years ago, they said that it is very rare when you find a chief elected prosecutor who is good at both being a good administrator and being a good prosecutor. And you do both of those things very well. And I think that that is, that's rare. You definitely run one of the cleanest offices in the state. And I, I I know I have that information because I've been to so many of them and you are beloved by your staff and well-respected by your colleagues. So thank you so much for coming on. And I truly appreciate your dedication to your community and your drive to keep Hamilton County safe. We're very, very thankful for you. Well, thank you, Shaughnessy. Appreciate your time very much. Of course. And everybody, please do your part. Go out and vote on Tuesday, May 3rd. I will be voting and I will be voting for Lee. Thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I will see you next time.